Released on Sunday, November 2nd, 2014, This Agile Life, episode 65, Checklists. Our sponsor tonight is Codeship. Codeship is continuous delivery made simple. Try Codeship for free. Setup only takes three minutes at codeship.io. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Craig Buchek. Hello, everybody. Hi, Craig. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Craig, also joining us tonight is the old Agile Factor himself, Jason Tice. How did I get to be old all of a sudden? Jeez, (laughs) I thought Agile was this revolutionary new way to write software, just like we say in our intro. So how can I be old, John? Well, you've been doing it for a long time. Really? Well, you know, and unfortunately, so you're old. Unfortunately, you know, tonight Amos cannot join us, but I, uh, I'm having fun with Twitter tonight. And you know, Amos, I got to tell you, I was out at a university tonight doing a, a, a presentation, and I, there were about 80 people there. And I said, "Does anyone here know what Scrum is?" Only one person in the entire room put their hand up. So, Amos, there might be hope for you out there. So you should go hang out with the college kids. Did they know what other sorts of flavors of Agile were? Not really. So, um, and this actually gets us to an interesting question about how Agile is, um, you know, where Agile's being taught and when do you learn about it? I know a few um, academic institutions do teach Agile as part of either their business or their computer science curriculum. But unfortunately, that is typically, it's more, that's more the exception rather than the rule, which which is sad. So... We, when I went to school, there was only one class on what I'll, what I'll call software engineering, sort of the the processes involved. Everything else was programming in, in theory. Yeah. And, and actually, I mentioned at this panel tonight that I threw out there, and uh, I'll give credit because I think I know we've talked about him, and if he's a cool guy, I used to work with him in St. Louis, a guy by the name of Mike Gaffney. We'll, we'll, I'll mention him on, in the show notes on Twitter. But one of the things he said, was, and, I, and I, I've mentioned this to several academic institutions, he said, you know, what colleges really need to teach people about programming is a course where, you know, you, you, you start writing some code, you learn how to put it and manage it in a, in a repository, so some type of version control, um, and then you go ahead, you get a CI server up and running or a continuous integration server that's actually building the code, testing it deploying it to multiple environments, so like a dev environment, a, a, a test environment, maybe it's going to push it out to the app store. You know, but but teach how to do that because I I know where I work we we have to we hire people off the street who know how to write iOS code or write a Objective C to do iOS development and we that's one of the first things we have to teach them because many of them have never done that before. So, you think the schools should be teaching that sort of thing? I don't want to get too deeply into this, but I, I'm just interested. I guess I, I think that's very practical because those are the skill sets. I mean, I mean the reason why, at least in my opinion. So many IT projects fail is because they build the wrong thing because they wait too long to deploy the software and get feedback. And I think one of the problem, one of the reasons why that doesn't happen is not a lot of people understand how to, you know, could set up a continuous deployment system. And so I, I think there's an opportunity to teach that. And um, and there's the great thing is there's lots of great resources online to learn how to do it. So if you happen to be listening to the podcast, you're like, okay, I'm not in college, but I want to learn. You know, we've put, I know we've talked about lots of things in the past. And I mean, even our sponsor CodeShip sometimes, I mean, their their product enables you to do that and make it easy to learn. And, and I know they support that when people have questions, they provide great support. So uh, that's just something that it's kind of, it's really not an emerging practice, but it's a practice that not a lot of people understand and put into, and put into good use. I think it'd be, okay to teach the concept, but I don't think there's any point in teaching the technology or tools oh. because they change so yeah, fast. Yeah, totally. I agree, John. And that's a good okay. thing to call out, but it's this idea of saying, you know, you know, cause again, the first time I set up, um, you know, I remember the first time I ever set up a continuous integration server, we used the original cruise control. Um, and it was like this yeah. old <laughs> server over in the back corner. It was, and it was a, you know, it was a standalone box that you never touched. 
And these days, you know, it's all, I mean, heck, it's all uh, Jenkins. The tools are different. They're typically probably deployed to virtual machines. They're running in the cloud. So it's, there's not a server in the corner you go touch. But it's or this there's just a service that you hire out or get for yeah. free for a cheap product. Yeah, like, like, like code ship. ship. Yeah, exactly. there you go. But, but it's the key thing of saying that that's a capability that if you're doing software development, you should be leveraging. And so if you want to do it yourself, build it yourself, or if you want to buy it in the marketplace, it's something you should understand the value it provides and learn how to use it properly. And, and so that that's that's my soapbox on that. And I could move so, on. Yeah. So I think that colleges should teach more of that and, you know, not necessarily teach how to use Git or whatever, but have them use it for at least one project, you know, all those things, at least one of the the varieties of each of those things in, in one project. So just so they have some experience under the you belt. Mean, you just, mean we, we can't but, use visual but, source safe anymore. That was the best tool ever. Uh, but well, I, I don't really care what it is as long as it's not visual source safe, but um, the, I think there's a problem though with, with computer science that people don't, go on to become computer scientists, they become programmers. So there, there really should be a, a curriculum for programming that, that goes through more of the software engineering practices and a little less of the theory. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because, you know, even to kind of say that, again, how do you do that in real life is I was having a discussion with a colleague this week and we were talking about what's the value of code review? And this is a team where you know, there's kind of a debate about, you know, do we need code review? Or if we're doing pair programming, is that good enough? And this is this is a I'd love to hear what you guys think about this. Um, so I'll ask you, I mean, is if I'm doing pairing, do I need to do code review? Pairing to me eliminates the need for code reviews. Uh, maybe. maybe. Um, I, I, it, it's it's a team decision. Um, it depends on depends on how big your team is. Uh, if your team is two or four, then probably not. If your team is uh, also how much experience do you have in the code, the, the two people on the pair? Um, yeah, it's, it, if it's, you've got a large team and you don't hit the code very often, then I'd, I'd be more apt to, to want a code review. In addition, uh, uh, the team I'm currently on does pairing, although we're doing pairing less than we used to. And we do code reviews. Really? Cause see where, where we're going to Craig is it's, it's based upon something you said that I want to highlight. We're, we're, deliberately working to use our code review as a learning activity because we have on the team we have a wide variation of of skill levels so we have people who really to what your point they have solid computer science understanding so they understand complex system design they understand multi-threading they understand parallelization and they they account for that in their design some other people are, are just learning that and and as a result the code review provides a way that the more senior engineers can provide feedback and we're trying to use it to encourage people to learn and you know very you know constructively point out well this we understand this method works and yes the test passes but when we you know deploy this and it's being you know that method is being invoked concurrently thousands of times in a minute that could create a problem unless you know unless we change the design so uh, so we're exploring that it's kind of interesting so yeah, I think part of our problem is we don't have as good code coverage as we would like to. So sometimes I'll catch things that the tests don't catch. Yeah, yeah, and, and it shows that code coverage, in my opinion, it's it's a good data point. But is and this even comes from the metric guy here to say that it's a good, it's an indicator, but it is not a be all end all solution. So I think at that point, some manual inspection may find things that the tools out there that do coverage simply cannot catch. How much time do you think you should be spending on a code review? Or how much time do you do you want people to spend doing code reviews? Just oh, no. enough. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> but not too much. How do you know what just enough is? I mean, sometimes if it's a one-liner, I will spend about five seconds on it. You know, like, okay, yeah. Um, if it's a couple hundred lines, uh, depending on if it's just sort of configuration stuff and simple, you know, rote stuff, then then probably less than 10 minutes, but if it's complex, um, if it's been worked on for a long time, then I may spend several hours. Uh, we sometimes go through and actually make sure that the, the data migrations were on and, uh, you know, actually do some manual testing of it before it gets to QA. Well, let, let me throw this one out there. I'd love, here's the one I'd love a coaching thing. I did once that was I'll use the word controversial because I was with working with a team and they had a problem where the team, the team was actually arguing about what the rules were in code review. And 
they were arguing about this specific question, how much time to spend in code review. So what do you think I did, Mr. Metrics here? I, uh, I said, let's have a rule which says that when we start a code review, we actually look at the amount of time that it took us to write the code. And we, we use that as a baseline to say that if the code review is taking longer than the amount of time it took us to write the code in the first place, that's something that we should talk about as a team. Wow, that would be... That would be unreasonable, I would think. Well, t- tell me <laughs> to, why. To spend that much time. No, to spend well, more time than it took the code. Well, um, but, but believe it or not, I mean, this was a team where sometimes, I mean, things that happen in a code review, you know, sometimes you have the, the, the pair that doesn't quite understand it. And what do they do? They re-implement the story based upon what they thought it was in the code review when in reality it might have been fine the first time. So uh, a lot of teams I've worked with, they don't have consistent policies about what should and should not be done in code review without having a whole team discussion. Yeah, you need to walk that back a bit. And first of all, you know, what can be done in a code review? Code review is usually, well, yay or nay, you know. Um, A lot of times you'll send it back and have them, you know, hey, make this more idiomatic. Hey, you got this variable name misspelled. Um, this doesn't seem to meet the specs that were provided. Um, usually our team rule is, unless it's a small change, you send it back and at least, or at least have a discussion with the people that implemented it. Okay. But let me ask a question. I'm hearing you say, send it back. What does that mean? Well, okay. If you're trying to, you said you use it as a learning tool. If someone did something wrong that, you know, doesn't meet the spec that doesn't meet the idioms of the language or whatever, or has a bug, then if you don't let them know, then they're not going to improve. I mean, so okay. you, you have to have provide feedback to the people that implemented it. Okay. Okay. Cause, cause to me, it's this question. And again, a, another anti-pattern that I've seen out there is, you know, somebody sometimes, maybe it's another pair, maybe it's like a, a chief developer or a lead developer, you know, they do the code review and they're like, this is not correct. And they literally will, you know, take, take the, the, uh, the story on the Kanban board and they'll move it backwards to development, effectively sending it back to be redone or updated by the, by somebody who did it or maybe someone else. And it's, it's kind of a, from lean, it's not really, in my opinion, respectful to say that, cause you're like, you're like flicking it back to whoever did it, like it was wrong. And what I like to encourage is the idea of saying, Hey, let's, Hey, I'm looking at this and yeah, I see there's some problems here, but let's fix it right here and make it better so we don't send it back. And instead, we fix the problem where we found it so we can keep things flowing forward. I've had that discussion on Teams, too, whether we stop the presses here and work it here or if we send it back. But if if it's going to take a couple hours of development, I want to put it back in the development column. I don't want to pretend that we're not doing development when when we are. So, so sometimes it doesn't sometimes and same with QA, if, if QA catches something, you know, don't do development work when you say it's in the QA column, that's just dishonest. Well, you, but you need to be but, honest with yourself. But at the same time, if you're, if you're, how do you handle if suppose you're doing the Kanban process where you have defined work in progress limits for each of the states of your workflow. So you've pulled the card forward, you're reviewing it. Your development queue is then full because you're working on more stories. You find a problem. Do you actually then send that card back and violate your whip limit? Because then you could actually create a bottleneck in the process. Or do you, do you, again, I would encourage you to fix the problem as soon as you found it so you get that story closer to being done. Okay, so first of all, violating your whip limit is not where the bottleneck happened. The bottleneck happened because it wasn't done right. So don't go blaming some other thing on the real problem. But yeah, you you have to fix it one way or another. Now, should you fix it in a way that helps the people learn to not mess it up the the next time? Or should you I mean, this is a it's a tough decision and your team needs to make that decision. But I I don't think that you should just always, you know, do development work in the QA column or the code review column, especially if it's going to take a long time. Yeah, well, I, I think I think it's good to do that. I think it's good to have. Let's say you have a code review column from a mechanics perspective, and you've moved a, you've moved a story from someone has pulled a story into code review. Okay, so I'm I'm now reviewing Craig's code, and 
I'm, I find that there's a problem with it. I'm not going to move that story out of the code review column. It's going to stay there and it's going to suck up a slot in the whip until we get it resolved. Now, that might mean that I have to get up, go over, pull Craig in and say, let's sit down and, and get this corrected. But I'm not just going to push it backwards on the Kanban board back into into development. So by taking me, though, you've taken me away from a story that I was working on. But so Isn't that okay? Well, that's what you do if you put something in the back, back column. But but the key because we're now now we're swarming on on the problem. Yeah, you're swarming. I don't have a problem with that either. Well, and the key thing from Lean Systems, we're swarming on work that has greater investment because it's closer to being done, and so therefore right. we want to focus our time and our effort into getting partially done work complete. So if we have a problem, that again, that's the logic to say we should try to fix it in flight, John, and just as you're mentioning, and try to move it forward. So what, one thing I like to see, though, and, I, and Craig, you hit on this, and I want to make sure we emphasize this to our listeners, is, number one, code review, it should be about learning. I think we said that early on. But also, it, it's important to be respectful and constructive to your colleagues. So, you know, maybe there, again, there's someone who maybe is just new on the team. And so it's it's important maybe to, you know, especially if you're doing the code review, and you find a problem and you need to involve that other person, as John just mentioned, to maybe think about, you know, think before you speak and make sure the way you present the information, it's constructive. So it can be a good conversation that facilitates learning. Sure. And, and, and but code review is not just about learning. It's also about quality, making sure that, you know, you're not throwing crap code in there. Um, so, I mean, I'll do everything from, just make a comment saying, hey, next time you should use this idiom a little bit better, clean this up, make maybe choose a better variable name, just as a comment for next time. So that's that's definitely a learning. Um, sometimes I'll make a change for myself, include that comment in the in the poll request, notes that go back to the, the person that submitted the poll request. Uh, but sometimes it just isn't right, and it just needs to, to get fixed. And, and depending on how your team works, that may mean sending it back or it may mean swarming on it. Sure. So, so let me ask this question, Craig. So if I, if I were to uh, show up at wherever you're working tomorrow as a new able-bodied, ambitious developer, and I was on your team, would I be able to find the policies for your code review and all these things about idioms and variable names and stuff you're talking about? Would, would I be able to find those documented anywhere? Or how would I learn those as a new member of the team? Oh, sure. Call me out in front of the crowd. Um, no, nah, we, we've done a not, well, most teams I've been on haven't done a great job of that. Ah, uh, and so now we get to where the so, code review starts to woo, get turbulent. But there's, well, if, usually, you, if you use the code review for learning, here's an opportunity for someone to learn those idioms and so, practices. So typically, that's something we would discuss if we're going to make a change to those processes. It's typically something we'd discuss at a retrospective. Now, how do we track and document what the current process is and how it evolves? Usually a wiki, but it's usually not updated as much as we like, other than the looking back at the retrospective notes from eight months ago. Yeah, and that's the case where that might be a little stale, like some moldy bread. So so I, I guess, you know, an idea, and, and, and it's funny because actually a, there's a team out there somewhere that they know where they are, where we're actually going to do this next week because we've been talking about code review and we've decided to have a sit down kind of meet about it. And we're going to we're going to talk about it as a team, which is something I want everyone listening to to realize that, you know, we got all kinds of different ideas amongst the three of us about code review. If you're on a team with a few people and you've never talked about your code review policies, Trust me, you probably have as much difference of opinion as you're hearing in the podcast here. So ha have a discussion about it. But we're actually going to kind of come up with like a code review checklist is the idea Yay. we've kind of come up with. Is that a good thing? Or is this, this is where we need Lee, because I'm sure Lee right now would be like, no documentation, Jason. I don't want your stupid checklist. Go away. Uh, but what uh, you're saying, are you being serious? Is Do you see value in that? I, I was actually going to ask you if you have tried using a checklist. Uh, I have had teams where that, that worked pretty well. Um, and it, you kind of have to be at a certain place. Like if your quality is really bad, your developers aren't doing the right thing. Sometimes it's just going to be too much. You know, you're going to have too many things that are, you know, not right. And, and the checklist becomes sort of too heavy. 
Um, but if your well, team is starting to, to move on all cylinders, then then the checklist is definitely a, a good thing. So you don't miss things. Um, yeah, I, and I think there's a couple ways because I've seen checklists go really wrong. So I, I have done them before. And I know that, again, I know I, I don't want to put words in Lee's mouth, but I strongly hypothesize if he were here, he, he probably would not agree because I know he he likes to look at things differently. But this, um, so I, I keep a checklist and I would say it never goes more than a page. So it forces you to be concise. So it can't become this huge checklist. And the other thing to keep it refresh, because what I've noticed teams do is you, you put a checklist in place when they first start using it, they, they're kind of dependent on, it, but then they kind of learn it. But what's really cool is if you're constantly having new people cycle on and cycle off your team, that checklist, the new person goes on. He's like, Hey, this is on the checklist. How come we're not checking for it? Oh, we learned we don't need to do that anymore. So then, okay, let's, you know, you use that new person to help update your checklist. So that's a really cool, kind of like a double benefit. So, yeah, all documentation should be read by the new person and they should provide feedback. Well, or, uh, or the T actually, it's funny that a team I'm working with right now, they have a policy where, uh, it's kind of, I don't want to call it a policy, but it's kind of a rule that that just happened where a new person comes out of the team. We we've put together kind of like an onboarding guide that's on a wiki. And as part of going through it, we, we ask people to, if they find something that's inaccurate or they could improve it to do so. Yep. And we've had really good luck with that. So, so back to the checklist, there's a book called the checklist manifesto and I'll put a, put that in the, in the show notes. Um, and it talks about how checklists can help you uh, improve processes. And uh, one of the biggest things that the, the book talks about is doctors. And it's improved, like it's reduced infections by like 20% or something ridiculous. I think it's actually more than that. I can't find the, the percentage. But just well, by having a checklist, you would think doctors would know to wash their hands. Yeah, but, but but the amount of times they don't with without having a checklist that they actually use is astounding. Yeah, and there's other things too. There's a whole uh, from having done some business process work. There's a whole uh, body of work about what they call checklist-driven processes, which have a lot of advantages, especially for doing software development more so than traditional like business process budget, where step one, step two, step three, step four. Because the problem with that in software, since what we're doing, there are so many deviations and problems. It's like okay, I I need to do these five steps to to be successful in my workflow. But things are so crazy, I don't always do them in the same order. If you use a checklist, it allows that. But if you're going step by step, that tends to break down. So um, so if you've never looked into that, that's a cool thing. So, Hey, guys, here's an idea. Why not check out our sponsor, CodeShip? CodeShip is so simple to use. You can get your project set up and building on CodeShip in as little as three minutes. If you're not using CodeShip, then you're spending more time on continuous delivery than necessary. Our good friends at CodeShip won't even ask you for a credit card to get you started. I know, I've done it. What are you waiting for? Maybe you're worried that you'll run into a problem or you'll have trouble getting started. Fear not. If you need help getting started, you'll find all the help you need on the CodeShip blog at blog.codeship.io. Plus, their blog has tons of interesting and helpful posts and videos to help you elevate your continuous delivery. If all else fails, the good people at CodeShip are easy to reach and they are always happy to help. Few things in life are easy, but this is one of them. Let CodeShip make continuous delivery simple for you. Go and visit codeship.io slash thisagilelife and use the offer code thisagilelife when you sign up and you'll receive a 20% discount for three months on any paid plan. Thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring This Agile Life. ThisAgileLife.com Craig, it sounded like as you were describing what you were, your process, and since you guys work remotely a great deal on your team, right? You guys must have a tool that you use to facilitate the uh, the process of, of performing code reviews? Um, we, we just use uh, GitHub pull requests, um, which work pretty well, actually. Um, they've got comments, and you can comment on individual lines of code. Um, and then, you know, there's basically a big green button to say, okay, let's merge this. Um, so is there anything more than that, really. But Craig, is that where, um, like on your team, is anyone allowed to merge or is that where certain people, maybe by role or title, have the authority to merge on behalf of the team? 
Um, we use it as a slot in the Kanban board, and whoever finishes the story and the code review slot is has something in it, then that's where you pull next, because um, it's usually the most bright most that we can work on, because uh, QA is after that. Um, so our our current team, actually, anyone can do that. And I think um, every team that I've been on, I think, had that, um, that anyone could do it. What do you think for teams that are all co-located, making the code review part of your definition of done for development? Uh, there were There were some teams that I was on recently where that was part of definition of done was to have you would you would basically turn around in the pit or in the work area and say, "I need a code review," and if somebody if there was a group that was available, they would step up and say, "Okay, we'll do the code review for you." Or if no one was currently available, they'd say somebody would say, "Well, we're going to be available in about five minutes. We'll we'll do a code review for you then," and you maybe would go back and kind of twiddle around with some stuff, get the code review ready. And then when the person was available, they'd slide over and, and do a code review with you. Oh, like an in-person review? Yeah, absolutely. Slide right over where you're at and, and do the code review. So, John, John, I am hearing one of the deadly sins of lean. I am hearing waste. I'm hearing you were waiting for like five to ten minutes for someone to come over. And if you add that up over time, that can be expensive. So... Yeah, uh, what's your what's your proposed alternative, oh master of the lean, of the waste redu- reduction? Yeah, well, so a couple of things. I number one, I value data, and again, having been on more than one team where we in completely different environments, completely different people, the discussion of we're spending too much time in code review or we're rewriting stories in code review, all those re- things came up. This idea of being able to get some some time or some data about how long code review takes is invaluable for those discussions. So I like the idea of having a separate like queue for it on your Kanban board or in your workflow. So there's a clear handoff when the story is complete, when the development is done and then you hand it off to someone else to code review. The other thing that that will force, because especially if you're using a Kanban board, is it will force if you have a policy, which I would recommend to say there is a, there is a change of, of who's doing the work. And it's it's interesting. I've seen pros and cons to where you when you do a code review, it's like one of the people that did the story needs to help the other person do code review. But which obviously there's pros and cons to that. I've also seen where by policy, when code review is done on a story, it cannot be done by any of person who worked on the story. So that assumes that the stories are real small. But again, so, you know, so Craig and I worked on a story here, repaired on it. That means Craig and I are ineligible to do the code review. And so John and Amos would have to do the code review in that story. So which forces them to learn about the code I wrote. I agree with that, that mechanism yeah. of so having I would, I, others perform the review. But, but to force that, because what I'm seeing, John, is when your scenario, I'm seeing how people could get lazy because the policy is not explicit, is I would say there's a separate queue in your workflow or on your Kanban board. And by policy, when the car gets pulled over, it's pulled by at least one person that's different that did not work on the story during development. So you have some fresh eyes on it. That that's it, my. It is an ex- that's the hold on a second. Hold on a. That's, let, I need I need to I need a chance to re, rebut this ah. because because it, the policy is explicit. It just doesn't happen to reside in a slot on the Kanban board. It's part of the definition of done. And then there's there's no kicking the one of the problems that we we uncovered as we started to talk about this code review was what happens when it fails. Right. So if it fails in development at that point, if the if there's a problem with the code review, there's zero waste because I'm intimately familiar with this code. I've just been working on it. I have a failure. Somebody tells me that it does not pass the code review. They quickly explain to me why it didn't pass. I don't have to read comments or try and understand what someone wrote into some comment somewhere or get re-familiarized with that particular code when I go back in to fix it. I'm right there in the code right now and I fix it. We move on. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a couple things. One, you're not the one who's wasting time. Uh, but it's it's you have to find that other person. Well maybe you are wasting time while you wait for the other person. It's the getting two different people to sync up time wise 
to do that in-person code review that that causes a problem. But I don't know how to do an in-person code review without having that kind of issue. I my my default is to have a separate column for code review. Yeah, I, I think the data is invaluable. That and, and not that you couldn't track the data, but it also allows you if you really want to do some advanced performance tuning of your process. It means because technically, if the development is done and you say, okay, development's done, that's a wait state. And so if you truly want to track the, uh, the, the true efficiency of your team, you need to differentiate between when work is being done and when work is waiting. And, and John, your, your, your system wouldn't provide the, that fidelity of data, which, uh, again, if you're thinking you want to do simulations and stuff, this kind of stuff that I like doing, you need to have accurate data for those to work. It was my experience that you never had to wait very long for someone to free up because most of the time, if you were going to wait any, any significant amount of time, like if, if everybody, everybody had just all pulled new stories, you're, you're the only ones that have finished. You would just ask someone to interrupt what they're doing and come over and, and do your code review. How long were your typical stories on that team that, that, that worked well for you? Uh, they were probably about a half of a day to a day and a half hmm. in length. I, I was going to guess they would have been a little shorter than that, given the the short wait times for that type of thing. Yeah, I mean there there was it was a relatively large team. There were probably four pairs, and there was a, there was a lot of grinding over stories. You know, I would I would say that probably the majority of them were half a day to a day long. So let um, me look. Let me draw one other thing out here, John, about what you're saying, because there is one other option to consider when you're thinking about your policies for code review. John, what you're saying is by stopping there and having someone come over and join you for the code review, you know, you've got it fresh in your mind. And so that you are hypothesizing that there's an efficiency gain by doing that. It helps you go faster. The other way to think about this is to look at, say, I want my team or I want our team to really understand the software that we're working on so we have strong collective code ownership. And at that point, I want actually to say, you know what? Hey, I didn't work on this story. I, you know, John and Craig worked on it. I'm going to do the review. And if I find a challenge, I might ask John and Craig for a question or two. Uh, but I'm going to, you know, pretend Amos is here and Amos and Jason are going to go over. And the benefit is we might take more time, but then we understand that software just like John and Craig did. And so we're, it gets us all on the same page. It is going to take more time, but the benefit is we all understand it. So that's a thing to think about when you're, when you're making a policy about code review. Or you could do five-minute pair switching like Amos likes to do, and then, then everyone's going to learn it anyway. It's down to five-minute oh, pair switching I'm just now. Making fun. <laughs> there is no way that would work. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I will well, go try. One hour work, then half an hour work, and if half an hour work, within 15 minutes. I work. cannot believe Amos. Amos doesn't like Scrum. Okay, he thinks Scrum doesn't work, but then he says we should have five-minute pair switches. Okay, I, I'm joking. He, he didn't really ever say five minutes. Oh, but here, here's one thing I want to challenge. One of your hypothesis hypotheses. All right, bring it out. I'm ready. That how, I'm ready. I got Is that how you say it, Mr. MBA? Yes, hypotheses? hypotheses that I will have indicators so I can measure them. Okay. I don't think that the person doing the code review is going to really have that gain that much learning. It's not it's not going to bring them up to the same level as the people that wrote the code. I'll give you that much because it, it's it's typically and again this goes back to we should be reviewing the code, not refactor well it's okay. Things that I would propose, not refactoring, um, you know, because it, hopefully I'm hoping that you have some good definition of done criteria in your development queue that flushes those items out. And so your code review is kind of just like a double check. It, it, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that's what it will be. And I'll share. I've worked with teams where we pulled the data from the from the code review queue and we said, hey, why are our code reviews like like taking three hours? You know, and we had a discussion and. We, we refined our policies, we revised our definitions done, and over the next two weeks, our code review went down to taking like a half hour at most. So I, I will say it depends. Sometimes I will learn a lot about the code that I'm reviewing, um, sometimes nearly as much as the people that wrote it, and sometimes I will learn almost nothing. You know, hey, it's a, it's a one-liner, it's add something, it seems pretty obvious, it's not a big deal. So... Well, but, let me um, but you, let, I, I want to go back to the the sort of in-person versus written code reviews. Um, I mean, the Agile Manifesto says that that in-person is 
more powerful. But if you have it written down, then other people can see it. And also people will remember, can see why decisions were made. Yeah, I'm not opposed to that. Well, or I'm not opposed to having it written I, down. I guess why would you just not do it as a pair? So again, your code review is a pair column on your Kanban board. You you discuss it with the pair. I'll admit when I do it as a courtesy, I typically talk to the developers that worked on it if that's feasible and it's not going to take too long, just as a courtesy. And then you put as a little snippet of whatever the outcome was um, in, in the um, when you when you put when you merge the code. The commit comment. Yeah. And again, you're not going to write you're not going to write a, a a long email like I write because that's bad. You know, you got to keep it short. Right. And I think you can still do those things when you're doing an in-person code review. You can still have the other person pull the code up on their machine. In in one case, that was how, even though we are all in in person and together, you actually did the code review on a different on a different uh, dev workstation. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because I'll share the thing that I, that sometimes I'm a little I get concerned about with teams is and actually i was looking at some some documentation this week for a, a test product that uh, that was being evaluated and like there was documentation or in their documentation it was marketing documentation they were saying that like yes your your testers like are, don't have to talk to your, their developers that the tool will facilitate the exchange of information about problems and stuff and i'm like no we want the testers to talk to the developers we want them to work together and and so i'm I'm a little concerned sometimes that some of the tools are are really starting to encroach on what should, in my opinion, be a face-to-face conversation. Yeah, that was why I initially brought up to Craig the com the comment of, and the question about what was the tool that you're using. And I think in the case of a remote team, any team where you have people distribute it, you need some mechanism to help facilitate, even if it's even if it's like using, uh, you know, WebEx or a Google Hangout or something to do it, there's some technology that's that has to help enable the code review. Uh, and I think that staying in general, keeping that tool lightweight, is the best for the communication. If you turn it into this whole crucible workflow or or some other tool based workflow, you know, it you lose out on the you lose out on that on that ability to sit down with someone or to have a real person to person conversation where you can really get more learning uh, and have more of a chance to, to pick someone's brain and, and ask them what they were thinking when they, when they uh, decided that this was a violation of one of the things. But I wanted to go back to the checklist for a minute and suggest that if someone is strictly doing a code review by a checklist, I think that reduces their opportunity for learning in some cases because if they're very explicitly just going through a checklist uh like a pilot would as he as he's as he's preparing the plane for takeoff right he's like flaps rudder check check you know that sort of thing i think that you kind of just start to look for you look for um the big violators and you don't really spend the time uh, diving more deeply into the code and kind of exploring around. What do you guys think of that? Uh, my code, my code review checklist tend to be a little more vague. Like, you know, has it been well refactored? Um, well, how do you assess that? Well, you're going to have to assess that anyway, aren't you? I mean, those are the kinds of things. It's not like, you know, did he follow policy X, Y, slash two um it's more you know is the are, are the variable names chosen well um i'm actually trying to look up if i have one that i can find i would more i would more think rather than something that says is it well refactored to say is it is it simple enough we we, we actually had one that was does it meet the specs it was actually one of the things on our checklist well the other, th- the other thing i want to say john that you're drawing attention to is that is that is a known risk um, or even call it a deficiency of checklist driven activities because there is a chance to just become complacent to combat that there is a way kind of what craig said to create checklist criteria 
that are more, I'll use the term amorphous. So you actually have to do exercise some critical thought to see if the criteria has been met. And so there is a step one is there is a skill to doing that. But the other thing is, and you used a flight analogy. So it's interesting because on a flight checklist, like you mentioned actually checking the flaps. Do you know how you check the flaps typically on a flight check checklist? I have no well, idea. So when the plane's on the ground, you actually typically attempt to use them. You know, like you, you know, you, you take the elevator rod and you jam it down and you pull it up and you're you're looking to see if you have feedback. If you're on a small plane, you can typically look out the side window and see if the flaps are moving because if you're you know you're you're actually manipulating the hydraulics or the wiring that makes that work. If you're on a Boeing plane you're and you're flying by wire, well, you can do it, but it's all based on computer systems. But nonetheless, it's the key of you're actually you're you're testing it, you're making the system work. So I'm trying to think of a metaphor in the code where like, how would you actually like make the code work to confirm it does the right thing in the process of a code review that isn't already being done by your tests. That's what I'm. Uh, I was going to say just running the test. That was always, that's always been part of any code review that I've done is to, is to run the tests that were written. Well, and also important, again, I've seen this um, even recently, is the code review when you're looking at it. Again, if you're doing test-driven development, I actually, when I do a code review, I start by looking at the test cases, and I'm like, okay, I see what the story says. Let's see if I can figure out if I look at the tests that were changed in relation to this story, does it make any sense, you know? And I actually, personally, I start with the test cases. Uh it's always fun when you do that and you find they aren't there because then you have something to talk about. So, but but that's a key thing. So don't forget if you're doing code review to also look at the test cases. I typically start there as well and and in, encourage others to do the same. I think that's the, I think that's like step one in the checklist is review the test cases that have been written and execute them. I think that's a great one. So yep yep. Do they make sense first? You know, do they. <laughs> convey what needs to happen is a good first step too when reading them or does it just assert that something is not null yeah, and that's right. your only test yeah. case covered the code code coverage is is up got it so i kind of had a different one about this checklist idea i was gonna i was gonna type it on my notes to make sure i didn't forget about it so i guess what about this it, it, i haven't even ever googled it i'm sure they're out there like a a sample code review checklist but I could see, you know, if I go to the internet and I Google that and I find one, I could see some dangers if I just say I start using it or if I try to apply it. So I'm wondering if because every project's different, every team's different, is this something that it makes sense for a team to sit down and create themselves talking face to face versus trying to find one or borrow one from another project out there on the web or from even from another team in your company? Uh, I don't know if a starting point would be bad, um, but because uh, you definitely need to customize it for your team. But I don't yeah, know if it would be bad to start with a starting point. Yeah, I think that's good. That's that you guys are kind of because that's by I'm just this is just smelling like I could go awfully wrong. Like, hey, here's the code checklist I used on my last three projects. Let's just use it, okay? You know, and it's like. It, it it may not be relevant. So I guess if you want to adopt one or even bring one with you from a project to another project or a company to another company, you need to apply what I call the relevance test. And again, don't just say, let's try it. Let's actually talk about it and make, make sure it makes sense. It's nice to have something as a place to start because it's always difficult to start from zero, right? It's nice if you have somebody that says, hey, at my job, we used to do we used to do this, but I would never want to have someone bring something in and just inject it in, right? And say, okay, here's our code review process without having the rest of the team and without giving the rest of the team a chance to discuss it and uh, propose other ideas and alternatives and then make it their own. But I'm okay with having a seed of ideas that get the ball rolling. I think that could be helpful. And I think that's the good thing, John, because I mean, I've seen it sometimes like where there's the desire and unfortunately sometimes it even comes from management to say that, you know, here's our standard code checklist or code review checklist that all of our teams have to use. And it's like a policy and it's, um, and what I've observed when I've seen that is it goes back to that bad, that poorly designed checklist. The criteria are so high level and so, uh, so like just non-descriptive or non, non, non-valuable 
people just go through the motions and it doesn't provide a lot of value. So I, I encourage teams to not do that. To me, it is a team discussion that you should have really whatever the team feels it's necessary. But if you're just starting a project, you definitely do it when you get started. That way, when a card gets to code review, people know what they need to do to be successful. All right. Uh, so I found our, our code review guidelines or checklist sort of. All right, here we go. Um, one, one, the drum roll. one, read the ticket. There is a ticket, right? Um, is the code covered by test? And there's some sub bullets like uh, any test cases missing, um, different kinds of tests. Um, we have a, a rule on how to break the rules. You need to convince your pair and the code reviewers if you're going to break a rule. Uh, did the build pass? Is that documented on the checklist? Like the rule breaking criteria? Yes. Yes. That's awesome. Love it. Yay. Yes. Transparent I, I, governance. I, I, I love it. <laughs> I'm probably one that, that, that came up with that. When to break the rules. Although we had a lot of questions. We had a lot of discussion on that. I'm sure. Um, does it have a neutral or positive impact on code climate, which uh, basically does code metrics? Um, if it, the impact is negative, is it justified? What does negative mean? Uh, well, they actually give you a score. So oh, okay. So you guys have a tool that, that has right. a, oh, okay. So the, it's a, it's actually a quantitative value that would go down. I love it. Oh, I'm right, loving right. this. Oh, um, so excited, Craig. It's I'm going to have to extract some of this and put it on a, maybe a gist or something and, and put it in the show notes. Um, do you have any concerns regarding security implications? Um, does it solve the right problem? Like hey, that. so, so could I ask, so then if you have a security question on your code review, what are you doing to, I guess, as a team, discuss and establish an understanding of what your security principles are? Uh, we're not that sophisticated. Oh, <laughs> uh, so if I'm that new I guy just, that shows we're, up. We're at the point of. We're how at do the I point check of, that box? Okay. We're at the point of, um, yeah, let's think about security. Just just having that is a is a is more than we had before. Okay, but but I guess what I, what I'm getting to it, I, I'm trying to be constructive, is saying that if I'm the new guy on your team and and I start asking about security that we we've got some language in our policy or in our checklist that is ambiguously defined, which, which could create that, that problem where people just check it off or that it's inconsistently used when the checklist is executed. Uh, so a couple more, um, another rule, the pair doing the code review makes the final decision, or we have a team meeting about it. And here's my favorite is the code you're going, is this code you're going to want to maintain. That's probably my favorite rule. I love that one. Are you willing to maintain this? Basically, is the question, right? Yep. What I that's a good that's a good evaluation, and that's a non that's a non specific one, right. and that's the that's one of the important important parts here, and one of the pro tips that I think we've given everyone tonight is don't make your checklist like check for camel case, huh. check for compliance of of uh, no magic numbers, check for compliance of this, that. Let the static code analysis tools do all of that stuff that's very uh, by rote, we've, right? Or yeah, that's, that's yeah. very We've got one that digital. says does the code conform to our style guide, but it's just a single point and and, and not, that's okay. not that important. It's okay, but don't have them all be so specific, right? right, right you right. have those ones in there that say, hey, one of the evaluation criteria is, would you be able to support this code? And if the answer is no, you've got to defend that. If the answer is yes, you've got to defend that as well. The, the, the only thing about that, I, what I, actually, I really like that question because what it does is it forces a lot of other policy, well, sorry, a lot of other ideas that we've talked about on prior episodes because, hey, if you're a member of the team, you should care about the code. So it's, you know, the, the challenge is if someone's checked out and, they're, and they check the box anyways, you know, that, that's, that, that means you have a bigger problem to talk about with that person. So... Um, so that's a really good question. Um, it's it's kind of out there, but I could see how it might stimulate discussions like in a retrospective that are that maybe they 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 are found in the code review, but they're symptoms of bigger problems. But what if you run into an issue that is a doozy? Okay, it's a big deal. Uh, you've uncovered something very large. And probably doesn't make a lot of sense to try to fix it right now. Oh boy, this could take another hour. Oh, it's the, so so it's like, <laughs> hey, the code works, but yeah, it sucks. But it's the end of the sprint, and that thing called Scrum says we really need to ship our software, so we're gonna ship it, right? 
it's not even necessarily the end of the sprint. It's just that it's going to be like another, I don't even, I don't want to give you too much leading information here, <laughs> so, but it's, so, it's just a lot more oh, work. It's, it's, a, it's, it or not. it's, it's a code I wrote, right? You're right, John? No. Uh, you're right, code. It's, all, it's every bit of code Jason's ever oh, written. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> I'll stick to the architecture models. Okay. So what do you do? What happens then? So you let so, it go on. So you make a new ticket, you put it in the backlog, and it never gets fixed. That's that's honestly that's usually what happens on our team. <laughs> Isn't that the? What I yeah. would recommend. I, I mean, to me, this is like tech debt one hundred and one. It's like, hey, we got tech debt, we find it. And Craig, to your point, I I can't tell you how many projects I've done where, like, hey, here's a tech debt item. We'll put it in the backlog. We'll do it in the next sprint or whatever, and it's in the backlog a year later, and we throw it away. So it's it's. <laughs> Me and my multiple personalities always have a big discussion about this one and a war in my brain <laughs> about about I this. Hear. You know, yeah. It's like, do I really want to spend the time fixing it if it's it? It's not. It's not that the code doesn't work. It's just that the code sucks. Okay, so it does what it's supposed to do. It it meets the needs of what you're calling the ticket, Craig. You know, it 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 delivers the mail as jason used to say at one point in time it it delivers the mail it comes through on the on the requirements but it it is going to increase our tech debt so it's increasing your tech debt or it's just not reducing it no it's increasing the tech debt send it back now i i, I think i think you got to eat you got to eat your dog food i think if it's increasing tech debt most of what i found find is we didn't, didn't decrease tech debt when we could have um, but if it's increasing tech that I'm, I am apt to not let that pass a code review. Um, I mean, adding tech that is, should be, <laughs> does it not add check tech that should be one of the checklist items, right? Um, I would tend to send that back or spend the, whatever to do to spend the time to, to fix it. If it, if that's the case. I certainly think that that's the right answer. But I continually have these internal debates, as I said, with myself around how much is how much is is too much, and yeah, I'll just leave yeah. it at that. I mean, that's that's always the case too. I mean, if you're gonna get, uh, I mean, what's the value of the time spent? I guess you know, are we gonna spend four hours to save you know ten minutes of total time over the next eight years? Then then no, it's not worth it. But usually, yeah. tech debt doesn't isn't that easy to assess. Usually it's, you know, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there that adds up to the couple hours that you're going to spend eventually. So I, I got one more. I got one more. So what do you do if you have, if you, and tell me if you guys have ever seen this. Unfortunately I have where, you know, you've got a team, you got to, like we've said here, John recommended, I recommended, Craig actually recommended it too, this idea of having a code review queue on your Kanban board. People work, people work the code in the code review and maybe you know you're the per you're a person that didn't work on the code review but you want to go and you want to do the code review anyways and so you just go do it you know like even though it was already done by someone else and you find something that maybe you don't agree with what do you do what do you do to that person or those people on your team that have that practice so you are you saying that a completely external person to the writing of the code in the code review Gets wind yep. of something and has a problem I'm saying with it. Real life, like we all worked on them. We all worked on a story tonight. Craig and I coded it, and then John came over and John reviewed it with me, and then we merged it. And then guess what? Amos says, "You know what? I don't know what those guys did tonight, so I'm gonna go look at their merge requests tomorrow, and I'm gonna like do a code review just because I think I need to." And it's too late. Kick him well, off the team. Well, that's what I'm saying. So what <laughs> is it? Okay, so let's pretend Amos Amos decides to look at our merge tomorrow and. Number one, should he do it? And suppose now Amos does this and he does what Amos would do and he would say, oh my God, Jason, that code that you did was sucked, whatever. And what do we do? How do we solve that problem? So the problem is Amos is kind of working yeah. outside of the process. And again, this is all hypothetical. Amos, we're having fun, a little bit of fun <laughs> at your expense. Uh, although, I, you know, it's funny. Some developers have personalities and I, I don't know if Amos would ever do this. Or not. He could defend himself. He could, uh -huh. he could debate me next time. But, but, I'm sorry. I, I got at least I five or six teams I've been on where I know this happened and it caused the team pain, you know, because the team had a process. They had policies. They had code review criteria, but somebody felt that they were kind of above the rules and that they could do these ad hoc code reviews and, and then, 
you know, effectively say, hey, I don't agree, redo it and all that stuff. So what do we do? So tell Craig, tell right. me your thoughts. So so this is not an agile problem. It's not something agile has a solution for because it's just a problem in general, right? It's not even a software development problem. It's a it's a people problem. It's a team problem. You know, someone is not following your processes, not following the rules, and is being a jerk. That's causing friction. So my my first comment is that, you know, it needs to be addressed in in some sort of way. You you have these processes, don't go go violating them. One of the discussions that we had when coming up with our checklist was how do we keep from piling on? Like, and that's even before someone has merged the the pull request. But if someone's doing things after the pull request, that's just that's just outside of the process and and we can't fix it with process, right? Well, that, I, I think to me, to me, these are all indicative of a trust issue. And so that's where right. we go back to our uh, one of the best episodes of this Agile Life ever with Amos, where we had a discussion. What do you do with the person in the problem? And do you like have a private meeting with them or do you like talk about it? Right. You, you got to go back to that episode and right. uh, and figure out out of all those things we propose, what makes sense, I think. Yeah. So I mean, I get- if you're if you're going to do that. Uh, if you're going to look at a code review after it's already moved to the next uh, column in the Kanban board, then the most you should be doing is, you know, teaching people how they could have done it better. I, I wouldn't allow anything more than that. Like yeah. if you're, if you're changing code after the code review, you've just completely broken the process. And well, should... and to me, the other thing that I would just say that I've seen is because you, Craig, you mentioned changing code, but it's even, you know, hey, it's merged. We're done. We're moving on. Right. And so at that point, you know, there is no reason to go look at that, you know, that that specific that specific merge to say, OK, you know, I know John, Craig and, and Jason did this podcast tonight. Um, you know, Amos, I really want to see what they do. I want to do a little spy on them. You know, that's just that's just not allowed. There's there's no value that comes from that activity. It's pure waste. You know, go well, go. Well, uh, I've got a scenario where this actually happens and it's not waste. And that's someone after hours is going through looking at the code reviews and learning more. Um or just getting a better feel for what's going on on the team. But if you have a per- if that person is working after hours, whatever, why not have them work out a story? Like do something to actually. Well, like, you're working after hours. Product. You get to do whatever you want. Okay, <laughs> that's the rule. And stop working after hours. That's another yeah. story. But okay, so well, yeah. So number one, don't work after hours. Okay, step number one. Number two, if the card is done and it's merged, move on. And if you really oh, and, and so definitely. instead instead of doing phantom code review, you know, if anything, guess what? If you're really gung ho to do a code review. You know, the next time one pops into the ready queue to do code review, hop on it. But don't go, don't go Monday morning quarterback code that's already been checked out. So, well, I don't want one person doing all the code reviews either, though. Yeah, especially if it's the person that has to do them all. You know, well, has to in in air quotes. Put it put it this way: I think the reason I want to have this discussion is again, I, I've been on multiple teams where this has been an issue, and you, I don't know. It sounds like Craig, you're validating. You've seen this too, so. To me, this is a team discussion. So if you have a person on your team and you're a team member where you think this is going on, this is the thing to talk about in a retrospective, you know, because it's something that the way the process is designed, once it's done, it's done. We should be focusing on the new stories or the next stories in the backlog. So, you know, this is something you should you shouldn't just pretend you don't know about it. You should talk about it and really say, okay, what are our policies? What do we need to make? What do we need to do to make sure we trust each other so we can stop doing this? I'm definitely okay with it being part of a retrospective, but I would like it to be dealt with sooner if possible. So if it comes up and you notice that, you know, the guy named Amos happens to be doing this off hours and is causing problems, I think it's something where the team should all sit down uh, right away and say, you know, guys, this isn't part of our working agreements. You know, we've all agreed that this is already going to be the way that we do things. Until we change that, we need to make sure that we're holding ourselves accountable, that we're self-organizing ourselves around the principles that we've agreed to and discussed. And person named Amos, if you don't like that and you would like to change that, then let's bring that up and talk about it now, or let's bring that up and talk about it in our retrospective and see if we can find maybe a, a happier medium. But for the time being, you need to comply with with the process as we've all agreed to it at this point. You can just you can just play back this part of the podcast to that person <laughs> when they're doing this and but replace Amos with their actual We name. should just put like blank in there, you know? Yeah. So but it's more fun to talk right. about Amos. 
So I, I guess if we've done anything tonight, you know, I guess if I were to summarize it, John, I'd say, um, and like I said, there's at least one team and maybe they know who they are, if not, they soon will, that that will get to experience this in real life because we are going to have a team meeting to talk about code review specifically. And the reason we're doing this, we're a new team. We want to do something proactive so we don't get into all of these these problematic scenarios that we've really focused on tonight. So we're going to talk about the, you know, the rules, you know, we're, we're going to establish a precedent that once a code review is done in accordance with a very, a very a, a checklist, that's not too specific that makes you think about it, you know, it's done and we'll move on to the next thing. And we want to make sure everyone knows that up front. So hopefully and we can talk about this in maybe in a few weeks, we'll see how it's going. So good. We'll look forward to you reporting I'll back, report on, that back on it. Yes, I've, I'll be on assignment. Wonderful. This week's hottest picks. I'm going to do my pick first tonight. My pick is a new page that we've created on thisagilelife.com. You go to thisagilelife.com slash conf, C-O-N-F, and it's a conferences page. It's a listing of agile conferences that I've kind of just mined out of the internet. And uh, so check that out. What I would really love is for all of you that are listening, uh, when you go and you check out that conferences page, if you would send us other conferences that you know about or any other sort of uh, gatherings of people that come together to talk about Agile that we could share out on this page. So that's my pick tonight, the conferences page on thisagilelife.com. Jason, did you want to say something about no, that? No, I didn't. Am I next? Jeez, we need to come on board here. So oh. I, I'll, I'll do two picks. I'll do two picks this week. So All right, uh, Jason. first one is this kind of cool tool we found. Uh, we're doing some some uh, web service development. And so we found this tool that had an Austin Davids called Betamax, just like that old recorder that Sony used to have. But it's a, a tool that allows you to record um, and playback various HTTP requests to do web service testing um, and do automation. And so we've been playing with it a little bit, and it's a lot of fun. So I thought I'd throw it out there for people. Hey, wait that, a minute. There's what? a tool called VCR that this is ripping off. This is There's a tool called VCR in Ruby that does the exact yes. same thing. And so some of us are not using Ruby. We are what, using what? the ubiquitous language of Java. 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 Okay. And so this is a, a VCR ripoff for Betamax. And I'm going to make a new call called VHS next. Woo. So anyway, so Betamax, check it out. The other one, job plug conferences, which are really cool. But the other one, um, I've been uh, around St. Louis lately. Check out a local user group. Um, lots of great ideas there. Both if, if you are if you're a speaker like John, myself, and Craig are. Um, if you if you don't know, most local user groups are always looking for um looking for content. So it's a great way to you know practice content or develop content that maybe you could present at conferences. But the other thing, if you just want to go and hang out or attend. Typically, most user groups are free. So conferences, a lot of times you got to pay. So here's something free. So uh, and unfortunately, there's lots of local user groups and we have listeners from all over the world. So you're kind of on your own, though, but something to check out. And um, I challenge you, if you're looking for a, a goal for 2015 and you've never been to an agile user group in your area, put that on your bucket list and try to go try to go to a meeting sometime in 2015. You'll probably have a great time. So uh, great, Jason. Thanks. Go, Craig, Craig, what do you have you for go us? Now. All right. Uh, I will plus one his local user groups. I've been going to user groups. I've actually been running at least one user group for 15 years. Um, Amos now runs our local Ruby group. I run, well, I was running the uh, Ruby group for a little while. I was, I've was i run the uh, local Linux user group and the local Unix user group. Um, so they're great places to meet people, to learn stuff, to socialize. And if you ever want to learn how to organize a conference, you learn by doing user groups first. So I'm going to recruit ah. Craig to help organize a conference. Woo! Right. Uh, so here's a pro tip on uh, user groups. If they go for dinner or for drinks after the meeting, that's the most interesting part. Um, so it's funny because it seems like that's when all the locals usually bug out. Right, Jason? Yeah. But I, it's funny. There are user groups um, uh, that do. I, I know there's a bunch of them that will have the the wine and beer at the meeting. So, uh, anyways, alrighty. Uh, my pick for the week is a password manager. Use a password manager to manage all your passwords so you don't have to make them easy to remember. Oh, but I just use the same password at every website, Craig. Well, this is kind of the case. You use the same password for the password manager, and then it uses a different. Very hard to guess password for each website. 
Um, I am currently using a tool called 1Password. It's kind of expensive, but pretty darn good. Um, the problem is with the expense is that you also have to pay for it. I've had to pay for it on the Mac, on uh, my iPad, and on my Android. So I had to pay three different times. But uh, once I paid for it, it's it's good. Um, there's another one called LastPass, um, which is okay. Its UI is kind of not as good, but it's cheaper. And it has uh, integration with something called YubiKey, which is basically a a physical token uh, that you can just plug into your USB port, which is kind of cool. Uh, and there's another one, a uh, newer one, open source called Mitro, M-I-T-R-O. Uh, I haven't looked into that, but someone re- recently recommended it to me. So that's all I got for this week. I use LastPass. What do you use, Jason? I use 1Password. Very cool. So we're all doing the right thing with our passwords. Because we have too many. Because somebody needs to come up with a global identity management solution that works. Didn't Microsoft do that with Active Directory? Yeah, <laughs> Active Directory for the world. <laughs> it wasn't just Active Directory. It was something else. It was called oh, Passport. No, Facebook login. Facebook Passport.net, and it had a bunch of different names. The problem is there's not much money in that, I don't think. Just log in with your Twitter account everywhere. That happens a lot. It's open ID, isn't it? Twitter is uh, sort of. Yeah. All right, that's all we have time for today. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening and keep living this agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.